This is the Jewelers Podcast, a social storyteller's production. Welcome to the Jewelers Podcast. I am in the Dimmicks building in Sydney, so you might hear some doors in the background that some of you might be familiar with, all the Sydney jewellers out there. And I am at Diamonds by Design with Karen Lindley. Hello, Karen. How are you? Hi, how are you? Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, And joined also by Karen Deacon. Hello. And where are you from, Karen? What do you do? I'm from the floor underneath, on the fourth floor here in the Dimmicks building. Yeah, sure. Been an independent antique jewellery dealer since 1978. Okay. I started in England in the antique markets there yeah. and came back to Australia in 1986 where having been carrying out on my own business ever since as okay. an antique jewellery dealer. Uh, how, how did you get started in an uh, occupation like that? Uh, I, went, I went and worked for somebody in England who had an antique jewellery shop because like most Australians I knew very little about antiques so I read every book I could and... Uh, went to work for someone and then started to go to the antique markets and just saw where the other jewellery dealers went yeah. and followed them. Made a nuisance of myself um, hanging around them but um, I eventually got accepted and they eventually let me push my way into their tight little group. And yeah, sure. And how did you break into the industry? Oh, well, mine was in the 70s and I got a job as a personal assistant to an opal dealer. Okay. And what I knew about Opal, she could write on the top of a pin. Yeah. <laughs> but I very quickly identified this was a very strong male-dominated area and there were no females actually on the ground selling Opal on a large wholesale sale. But what I also noticed was that none of these men, whilst they were very entrepreneurial, nobody had any qualifications. I became a gemologist and then I've bullied them ever since. Now, these days, it's, it's quite even, isn't it? With sort it of, is. Uh, it the is. The sort of male-female divide. And I think it's quite uh, uniquely open to each other. There's oh, absolutely. Sort of less of a boys' club. Yeah. 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 The industry used to be, or particularly the opal industry and the jewellery industry, and even antiques to a certain extent, quite heavily male-dominated. Um, but today, it's not like that at all. Yeah. No, yeah, I've very, always found it very yes, encouraging. Very and what's it like in the Dimmicks building? Because it's just a hub. It is, but I've been here since 19, the early 80s. I'm one of the longest serving tenants in the building. Yeah. And was it always like this? Was there always lots of jewellers? There were more, more jewellery. Industry yeah. These rooms that I'm in today um, have been jewellery rooms for 70 years. Yeah. yeah, very good. So I, I was wanting to talk about sort of the uh, the Australian uh, style and and value in a international market. In the international market, what sort of techniques, styles, and materials do you think Australian is known for? Well, I think Australians principally known for its wonderful opals, and latterly the. Um, diamonds, coloured diamonds, yeah. and for a long time most of the sapphires that have been processed in Thailand and sold as Thai sapphires have actually been Australian sapphires which of course come in a wide variety of colours. But black opal, 98% of the world production of black opal comes from Australia and I think about 70 or 80% of the white opal But the best opals are all Australian. It's a funny thing with opals, isn't it? Every year they say it's coming back. 
I was like, where did it go? Well, is it coming back? <laughs> it's coming back. It is. <laughs> it, is. It, it has become more popular. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's partly to do with the fact that there are a lot of now lesser opals on the market, yeah. not the Australian ones, but um, Ethiopian, Mexican. Mm. So for the first time, there's been a big supply. And okay. so I think that the problem is that just people haven't been sufficiently exposed to opals before. But with these lesser opals, people have come, I think, to a new appreciation of the beauty of the Australian black opals. Yeah. So, uh, Australian opals are different. They're anhydrous. They do not accept water, whereas the ones um, from Mexico and Ethiopia will accept water and don't have the same stability okay. as the Australian opals. Does that, that affect the appearance of the it water? It affects the value okay. and, and affects the durability. So Australian it has a superiority yes, it does. Yes. in that yes. sense? In gemological superiority. What about sapphires? Where does sapphire sit? with Australia in, in international... Well, we don't have the best ones. No, here. the yeah. best ones are what, Colombian... What, Kashmir. Yes, Kashmir, Kashmir yeah. Colombian. And, and followed by Burma yes. and the best of the mm. Sri Lankan ones. Okay. But, yeah. What comes out of Kashmir? It's like deep blues or... Deep, uh, magnificent blue. deep... Peacock yeah, blue, okay. Wonderful mm. blue. Yeah, intense and, blue. Mm. There are some great sapphires in Australia. There are... A, a beautiful red oh, I don't creek. know that one. Yeah. Sapphire. You don't know them? No. Oh, I'll show you one. Just wow. beautiful, beautiful, deep luster. Really, really beautiful. And of course, party sapphires are also very nice. And we get some nice yellow Australian. ones here too. Yes. I think. Nice goldy, mm. goldy yellow ones. Yeah. But still today, a lot of sapphires that are sold in Asia are actually heat-treated Australian sapphires. So there's a, a devaluing yes, there? Yes, exactly. Definitely. You know, they're not regarded as quality stones. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's really the opals where we shine yeah. in yeah. our stones. There is a difference in appearance. Because I, I think I've seen some Mexican ones that are, are really got a lot of fire in them a lot of like red and well, Mexican stuff. of course is much more opaque you can just sort of more or less see through it whereas most of the Australian ones you can't actually see through unless it's a crystal yeah and the black crystal is the most highly prized of all but if you can see a magnificent white cliffs or Andamooka crystal I mean they take your breath away they're that beautiful Australia has pearls Mm -hmm. South Sea Pearls. We're toying with a coir at the moment. Uh, yes, up around Port Stephens. They're growing real. Have you seen those? No. Ah, oh, I'll show you some. They're really wonderful. Of yeah. course, you know, for years everybody says Mickey Moto Pearls. But Mickey Moto Pearls are actually only AAA grade pearls. Okay. They're just the Mickey Moto. There's nothing special other than finest quality. They're not grown in any different way or not treated in any different way or they don't have special water or. Oh, okay. It's just that they are triple A grade quality and the thickness of the nacre yeah. produces the beautiful luster and they are doing this now up around Port Stephens. Yeah. Uh, which is quite incredible. How long are they leaving him in, in the water for? Do you know? Years, I believe. Right. Yeah, I keep See, that's what to you go need. up there. Yeah. You need years yeah. in the water to get the thickness of the, of the nacre. Of the nacre. Mm. Yeah, okay. and, the, and the reason why they've been so few quality pearls on the market is that all the pollution in the seas around mm. the world wipes out the, the pearl crops. So, yeah. so they won't leave them for very long 
And it's a huge in, in investment as well. Lose the whole lot. Well, it is, and they want to obviously turn their investment over. And with the influx of the Chinese freshwater pearls, you know that has made a big inroad into both the South Sea pearls and the Akoya type of pearl. So do you think with, is it Mickey Moda that you said earlier? Yeah. So is that more of a brand thing then? Cause, brand, yeah, cause, absolutely. Uh, brand. Best branding in the world. I associate that with Marilyn Monroe. I'm sure I've heard that she got a necklace or yes. something from that brand. Yeah. Which adds to the... It does. Excitement, it does. but not necessarily the quality. Is that what you're saying? No, Mickey Moto is always finest quality. If you yeah, see okay. a strand of Mickey Moto pearls and just put it next to a strand of regular pearls sold at a chain store, well, there's no comparison because they're triple A grade. They're just wonderful luster yeah. and wonderful quality. They're very smooth. They're just divine to look at but you can buy exactly the same thing at a far lesser price without the Mikimoto brand. I mean, uh, Mikimoto has a particular cachet for Americans yes. because for years they weren't allowed to buy any because um, America wasn't trading with Japan mm. so they were missing out on the Mikimoto pearls mm. so the Americans particularly now buy anything Mikimoto. What other big names are there in pearl production? As obviously, we in Australia we have Paspali and um, Signet Bay. Paspali. There are quite a few big brand names out there, but Paspali would be the number one. Mm. Uh, there's Perlatore, also, but mostly Paspali. Perlatore. What did you say? Perlatore. Yeah. Where are they? Are they Australian um, based or are they? Yeah, no, they're Australian based, but they may be only wholesale now. I'm not sure. I don't I'm think they sure. have. A retail, but Paspali certainly has a retail arm, and their pearls—they're known for their really, really high-grade retail pieces. The young Chris is now running it, and I can remember before he was born. So, oh sure, yeah. So yeah. his mother was running it, and so it's like it's a, a proper family business. There seems to be a lot of family businesses in Australia for the production of. Um, well, for pr the Materials. production, well, certainly in opal. I know third generation opal miners, and the same with pearls. And of course, we've got the wonderful pink diamonds from Argyle. Oh, sure. What's the value of those at the moment? Because massive. Yeah. Is it just it going depends. up or? Do well, you they are slow down. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens because. Prior to 2008, Argyle didn't issue individual certificates with their pink diamonds and okay. they only issued lot numbers so there are quite a few stones now coming onto the market that people bought as investments but today you really need the Argyle certification because there are other diamonds that come from other areas that are pink that people try and pass off as Australian pink diamonds okay. but Australian pink diamonds do carry a premium and I believe that through the GIA and now through Argyle, Argyle pink diamonds have certain characteristics, optic gemological characteristics. So it is possible to have your pink diamond assessed yes. by somebody like Bill Seacott and he will tell you the likelihood that it's come from Australia because it fluoresces blue or it has the optic characters or yeah. consistent with Argyle stones. 
Aren't they almost mined out now? Yes, they're actually going to stop production in about another year or so, I understand. And it'll be interesting to see how that does affect the market. It's a bit like legalised gambling. I mean, I think I... Did I show you? I bought a 64-pointer recently. No. Sort of taking a gamble. But I bought it very well. But we'll just see... Love to see I've sent it, it off to the... Later. Yes, it's coming back. I just sent it to the GIA. Because it, even though... The person I bought it from bought it from the only known retailer of pink diamonds in Western Australia nearly 30 years ago. Oh, and wow. I've got the original purchase documents so, and the lot number, so it's reasonable to assume that it is Argyle. But because I can't sell it for the maximum price unless I have Argyle certification, so I've sent it off to the GIA yeah. um, in America to be to get a GIA cert, which is a totally different scale system from Argyle, and um, to get the known location. And then when it comes back, I'll send it to Bill Seacoff as well, so get as much certification as I can get on it. Um, and will it ever reach the value that it would have if it had the... I think it will. If it's got that provenance with the original purchase documents, yes. I mean, there's no doubt... Yeah. That in those days, if they didn't sell through any other retailer than this, and we have the lot number. What about materials in Australia? We, we've got a bit of gold. There was a gold rush at some point. Well, yes. I mean, we <laughs> didn't really start to manufacture jewellery here until we did have the gold rushes because there okay. were very few people with money, as you can imagine. At that time, we were, you know, a, a number of separate small colonies yeah. and most people if they had good jewellery they were English migrants and they either brought it from England with them or had it sent over from oh, England. Sure. So but when we our first period of wealth in Australia was with the gold rushes and there was a great surge of jewellery making at that time. So that's kind of like the birth of Jewellery in Australia yeah, so that around the 1850s mm. yeah, is, okay. is the birth of Australian-made jewellery, and we had sort of a quite a distinctive style in in the jewellery. It was um, we were the first country to incorporate working people and their tools in into jewellery. So you will occasionally, and and they are rare. You'll find a brooch with a gold miner and his tools, um, all fashioned from Australian gold. And, and no other country did anything like that. Pieces like this are now fetching enormous amounts of money um, for articles which incorporate Australia, Australian flora and fauna and, and uh, recording the history of, of mining. You know, a successful miner might have a, a large piece of gold jewellery made from, from the gold that he had himself sort of discovered. Often the pieces were not particularly beautiful. They were large and ostentatious to, for, you know, new, new country, yeah. new wealth, that it was all about showing how successful you were rather than how refined yeah, were. sure. Yeah, and so you'll get very large pieces, such as the piece I have in front of me, which is an, an enormously large citrine, which was probably also locally wow. mined. Yeah, and in a frame 
very elaborate frame, beautifully worked with great leaves and grapes and a little bird sitting on the top. You frequently see that motive of a bird on Australian jewellery, sometimes with a letter in its mouth. Okay. And I think it was because so many people were migrants and it was a symbol for sending messages back home. Yeah. Oh, so very that little dove is a, a very Australian signpost on a, on a piece of jewellery. So what, what age would you... So this would be 1860s, early and large, very large, <laughs> yeah. Whereas the, yeah. the next phase was uh, around the time of Federation when there was a huge upsurge in patriotism. Okay. And you get a lot of small brooches because, again, most people didn't have money. So a little brooch like... The one I've got in front of me with a, a tiny map of Australia oh, sure. sitting on a on a on a on a branch. Yeah. Very simple, not not at all complex in the way it's been made. But this was sort of um, to suit people's sentiments and pockets at the time. And what kind of techniques were they using? Were they yeah. Australia's always had a, a bit of trouble obtaining the tools? Not so much the tools, but the materials. Okay. I mean, something like that, that little brooch, costs $300. So if you're interested in collecting Australian jewellery, you don't have to have big pockets to make an interesting little collection. Yeah, sure. And then there are pieces like this, which is really exquisitely made. And it is unusual to get well-made Australian pieces. That's why I point them out that's been made with all the skills that an English or a French jeweller would have made at the time. And sometimes Australian pieces do have an identifying mark. We had a pseudo system of hallmarking here, mm. so which was like copying the English system. It's one of the ways to identify an Australian piece if it's got the particular marks that we used here in Australia. Is that including okay. the Australian uh, it was while we were still colonies. Okay. So this particular piece would have been made in the 19th century. So New South Wales has a different oh, symbol so, yeah. to Victoria. And they were the, actually the two, at that time, they were the only two uh, colonies really manufacturing jewellery. Yeah. So Because um, it's a whole subject in itself, hallmarking and identifying marks and yes. things. Hey, so what things are you looking for when you see a piece to try and identify and... Potential value you only get from knowing the market and what okay. similar pieces yeah, have yeah, fetched yeah. in the past. You know, there are certain things which are unmistakably make it an Australian piece, such as if you've got an Australian motive. That's obvious, like yeah, that little yeah, yeah. with the map on it. But there are other things which aren't so obvious, things like the grape leaves and grapes that I was talking about, yes. that you do see much more in Australian jewellery than any other country. And things like the little bud brooch I showed you, which incorporates, uses mother of pearl, because we had so little in the way of raw materials here. So we used whatever we had. And these mother of pearl uh, brooches are, again, something quite distinctively Australian. When you brought that necklace in, Karen was immediately asking, uh, what does this symbol mean? And This is a very rare piece, again, sort of probably from about 1870. Mm-hmm. So it's early. And it's wonderful because it's not only got the maker's mark on it, which is unusual, 
but still has its original box. Wow. Again, with the maker's mark, Dennis Brothers, because you do have to be careful. Sometimes a piece will be put into a box which it doesn't actually belong to, but these two sure. have obviously always uh, been together, and, and the back box yeah. does actually add to the value. And this is such an interesting piece because not only is the workmanship so beautiful and Yeah, restrained. I was going to say, it's, it, that is refined. It, it is yeah. refined, and so it's exceptional for an Australian piece in that way. Yeah, okay. That it's got um, Dennis um, Brothers were a French firm, yeah. and I think that this shows uh, that European sensibility that they brought with them when they came to Australia. And, uh, and this is a piece which would... Uh, stand up to any international piece at that time in terms yeah. of quality, which is unusual. Each each link has got different engraving on it. When you look closely, you'll see within each link you've got about four different designs. Yeah. So I feel that this is possibly a piece that was made for an exhibition to demonstrate the skill of yeah, the jeweller. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, as many jewellers will be familiar with that process of making something you wouldn't normally make. Yes, that's right. A priceless piece almost. Yes, yeah. quite so. I wonder if it was made for the Brisbane exhibition, the big expo they had in 18-something, 18... It could have been. Um, yeah, they had a huge exhibition right. there in the late 1887, mm. something. Well, something it was, there. It was a, a time of exhibitions. So there were there are a number in Australia. It may well have been the one you're talking mm. about, but it wasn't mm. the the only one. Um, could, could you have a piece that's just purely story? Could you have a piece of plastic that's got just such a fantastic story well, you, that you could has ha an exceptional value for something? You could have things with no intrinsic value, yes, which have got great great value, and that's uh, the Aboriginal mariner shell or mariner shell necklaces, yeah, yeah. which um, are the only type of Aboriginal jewellery which has lasted. And they go back 1,800 years is the oldest wow. um, shell necklace that they've found. And it's only from Tasmania where they have these particular shells. The tradition is still exists today. They collect the shells, they clean them and they string them. And the only way the methods have changed is they now use cotton and needles, whereas they would have used um, a sharpened kangaroo's tooth and kangaroo sinew to string them on pre-invasion times. And people are appreciating them more and more, so they're going up more and more in value. But they're still in the hundreds, most of them, rather than the thousands. But uh, yeah. you know, the, the best examples would go for over $1,000. We're looking at the cost of materials, the workmanship, rarity, Artistry and condition. Story, if, if yeah, a provenance. princess has worn a necklace that increases the value, yes. generally? As long it as does. it's part of the actual provenance. I mean, it, it's like being a little bit pregnant. Yeah. You know, okay. you have to be able to prove what you say, otherwise people can say anything. Uh. And I call it family mythology. You so. know, when they tell you that Aunt Fanny wore this on the Titanic, well, where's the picture of her wearing it as the boat's going down? <laughs> sure. You know, so unless you have proof of provenance, for example, this necklace, there's no doubt that that was worn by British royalty. Yes. Because there's the photo of her wearing it. And that actual piece was called the Kaleidoscope. My 
business partner and I, we mined the opal. Percy Marks made that piece. Yeah. And it was eventually sold through a large wholesaler in Tokyo. And I believe the end consumer, via the Ginza, was the wife of the president of Mitsubishi Japan. And somewhere I have a photo of her wearing it as well. Yeah. I doubt it'll ever come back into my, uh, my possession, but I wished it would. Yeah, it sold for over a million dollars. We sold it for far, far less than that. Um, that was a particularly fine quality black opal. I can still count on one hand the number of opals I've seen to equal that. It weighed 75 carats. It was absolutely magnificent. I should imagine that if she doesn't still own it and she puts it on the market, it would fetch an extremely high price because the provenance is there and she has that photo. What can you do if you don't have the records? Like what you're doing with your pink diamonds? Uh, yes. yes. I'm actually building the provenance by keeping the original documentation, having things certified. But provenance That's... isn't frequently that important. I don't find with jewellery that it's like you often don't get provenance with jewellery mm. because it's so portable. You know, it's always been a very easy way to raise money through jewellery. So sure. it moves around in a way that furniture mm. and big silver pieces don't. Most jewellery on the market is anonymous in terms mm. of its history. Oh, sure. And then that might be set to change with. Oh, but I think there's a things. difference though between jewellery and things like pink diamonds where there's already that build up that you need to be able to prove that it's argyle to get the premium with lightning ridge black opal yeah. you need the and the older it is the more valuable it is because those fields are practically mined out I can't tell you when I last heard of somebody finding a knobby black opal at Lightning Ridge with a jet black back and a harlequin face. They may very well find harlequin face, but it won't have a jet black back from the three mile. Whereas if you've got provenance that something is from the three mile, um, you can maintain the value. So with the exception of opal and argyle diamonds, and I can see what you say, people you know, buy jewellery and then they need money. And not so much now, but I remember back when we had a lot of um, Vietnamese coming by boats, hmm. that many of them would bring jewellery yeah. sewn into their jackets and their pockets, and that's what helped them when they first got here, yeah. by selling the jewellery. Talk about some golden eras in jewellery in the world, sort of France. It's a good, maybe a good place to start, or Italy. Where would you start? Where's the sort of origin for you? I'd start in England. Yeah? Yes, because I'd they had England. a middle class before any other country. I can tell you something really interesting about opal. And the first parcel of black opal to go to the UK was sort of in the early 1900s, maybe 1904, somewhere there. Mm. And he took it to London. I think it was Ernie Sherman's father. Right. An old man came in here one day who was the father of one of my regular clients and he was a twin. His brother, he was 90 and his brother was very poorly and living in Glasgow and he wanted to go there. And he was just a pensioner but he said that he had all this stuff in his safe that he'd inherited from his mother who was an antique dealer in Glasgow and could he bring some of it in and could I see if there was anything that we could sell 
that he would give him enough money to go to England and see his brother. So I said, well, why don't you go through it and choose the pieces that you really, really don't mind if you get rid of and bring it in. And he came in with a black opal piece that I took one look at. And he also had the documents from where his mother had bought it in 1904. I picked up the phone and I sold it sight unseen to an Australian dealer just wow. on the paperwork for a king's ransom. And because we were able to tie that piece to the first parcel that went from Australia of Black Opal to the UK. Amazing. So it was wonderful. It was the most amazing piece. We were an, an English colony. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. we did so much trade and most people still referred to England as home. Yeah. You know, so yeah. mm. we didn't have very much overseas um, migration at that time, and we were we yeah. didn't become an independent country until 1901. So yeah. back in the early 1900s, when they first found black opal, I mean, they really hit the motherload. There was just fantastic opals, available. and most of it left here mm. and went either to England or France or America. Okay. America. Mm. Uh, Tiffany bought the most yeah. fabulous black opals so we didn't have the markets here we didn't have the jewelers here possibly because it was Australian an Australian product yeah. there was no uh, respect for it here in the UK like so you were talking about the middle classes yeah so from around about 1780 yeah. then you start to see uh, quite a lot of jewelry production yeah. And I guess with the royal family as well, like they they well, contribute it, to the the British story quite significantly, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's they, always royalty yeah. in, in all countries because oh, it's yeah, not sure. only the the Brits yeah. who've got a tradition of the most fabulous jewels sort of belonging yeah. to, to nobility being gifted to but them the from difference, other countries. The difference well, between. Yeah. England and other countries was, say, this growing middle class who could aspire to the quality of yeah. the jewellery of the nobility. So making it without mainstream. Being, without being born into it, because in other countries too, they had laws to forbid people from wearing extremely valuable jewellery, which they, if they were commoners, which they didn't have in England. So, mm. and there was no one period. I mean, you know, one talks about late Georgian jewellery, the Victorian period, which was so long from 1837 to 1901, followed the Georgian period. You've got early Victorian jewellery, mid-Victorian jewellery and late Victorian jewellery because stylistically, of course, it was changing all the time as fashions changed and hairstyles yeah, sure. changed and lifestyles changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And something that I was totally unaware of and came across quite by accident about 30 years ago when I was in the UK and I went to stay with extended family friends in the country, she had a whole lot of stuff that she showed me, jewellery, and she said they, the family had sold most of their jewels, but they had a lot of the pictures and drawings and sketches and would I like to see them? So I thought, yes, why not? Well, I nearly fell off my chair. They had all these wonderful sketches of pieces that had been made by 
various famous houses and European houses. And then on the drawing, it would be a line across it, sold to Queen Victoria, you know, sold to Lady so-and-so or sold to Lord such-and-such. -and, -such. and I was really surprised. So they must have done quite a bit of trading amongst themselves. It was really quite interesting. What do you mean trading amongst themselves? So Well, when the nobility wanted money, oh, instead yes. of going and selling it through a jewellery store, they were selling it to each other, trading with each other, within their own, for what, want of a better word, oh. than classes. So with, it was tax-free yes. trade? Yes. So do you think it just comes to sort of who are the celebrated brands, houses, makers in these countries that sort of give them that extra fame in history yeah. the russians having fabergé and well the you know the jewelry the, yeah the jewelry houses the big jewelry houses and they all used to produce fabulous jewels nowadays their their money comes from selling very cheap jewelry to the masses and yeah. they live off the reputation that they established years and years ago when people really did wear fabulous jewels but that involved hundreds of hours of workmanship yes yeah, so which is just not done today so you'll see big rocks because you know people have got the money for them but not the emphasis on workmanship that you used to have in the older jewelry right? yeah so well, there was a big cartier exhibition in canberra recently yeah and the early pieces from uh, the early part of the 20th century, the workmanship was exquisite. But I noticed as the decades went on... Yes, I noticed that, that too. The, it was all about the stones rather than craft. And it, and it still is today. So they were riding on their coattails of yeah. yesteryear. And in the same way that Tiffany does and all the big jewellery houses do nowadays. Yeah. Even... Companies like George Jensen, silver makers, all their jewellery is produced in Asia now rather than Denmark. The, yeah, so sure. it's it's the same the world over. It's the cost of workmanship nowadays is so expensive because people don't work for slave wages anymore. Yeah, sure. So we're not we're never going to see those things again. Or if we do, they're yeah. in the hands of a very very few people. Yeah. So let's finish on what your favourite piece is oh the most amazing piece i've ever seen was 10 carat or 12 carat pear-shaped harry winston ring no that was so rare to see when i first looked at it i thought now whose stamp is mh surely not michael hill couldn't possibly be they couldn't make anything <laughs> like this and it wasn't till I was thinking about it oh, HW. I was right. looking at it upside down so there's a joke on myself mm -hmm. but it was you could just even before I touched it yep. I could tell this was something really special so you're talking and diamonds it, yes it yep. was um he had another piece too a sapphire piece and it was an American man living here who's he had inherited it from his mother and he thought that they were fake because his mother was an opera singer and she had lots of fake jewelry and he just liked those two and when they were divvying it up he took it and he was gobsmacked to find out that it was real and really? originally he brought them in to remake them or do something with them so at the moment we're 
discussing what he is going to do with them. Buy an apartment might be a good idea. Oh, wow. Yeah, What's been one of your favourite pieces that... It's, it, there hasn't been one favourite, but I suppose one of my favourites was a, quite a small brooch I had, but it was a miniature of a young girl by a um, very famous miniaturist of the time called John Smart. So this is a piece from the late 1700s. And it, although it's a piece of jewellery, it was also a work of art. And yep. I've never forgotten uh, the outstanding nature of this oh, beautiful sure. brooch. But, you know, you, these things do pass through your hands at the time. I didn't want to sell it, but I did sell it, and it went towards a deposit on my first house. So, so there you go. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time thank you to You're have welcome. a chat mm. uh feel free to tell everybody any web pages instagram facebook yeah i know karen have you got uh karen deacon karen deacon yeah is it d-e-a-k-i-n yeah. mm. i know you at diamonds by design or yeah. thank you very much you're welcome. all right take care thank you Bye-bye. very much this is the jewelers podcast a social storytellers production 